Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. For my yoga teacher friends who are interested in working with the pregnant population, Prenatal Yoga Center offers an 85-hour Yoga Alliance certified program based on our three-pronged theory of prenatal yoga, asana, education, and community. Once a year, we hold our three-month immersion program in New York City. For those who cannot attend this training, Caprice and I are now traveling to different locations holding our training at hosting studios where we will spend six days working together, exploring and learning about prenatal yoga. This training consists of more than 50 hours working together. We also created a whole membership website with more than 20 videos corresponding directly to the manual you will receive. For more information, check out our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. Hope to work with you soon. Take care. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb, and I am your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're going to talk about inductions because I know it's something that many women do face, and it's a thing that many women do fear. So we have Dr. Jean DeClerc, who's going to talk to us all about that. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Jean DeClerc is a former childbirth educator and is the Professor of Community Health Services and Assistant Dean for Doctor for Public Health Education at the Boston University School of Public Health and Professor on the Faculty of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Boston University School of Medicine. He has served as lead author of national reports on women's experiences in childbirth entitled Listening to Mothers 1, 2, and 3, and New Mothers Speak Out, and is the founder of the website birthbythenumbers.org. He is the recipient of the Martha May Elliott Award from the American Public Health Association for Service to Maternal and Child Health in the U.S. Thank you so much, Jean, for joining us. I really appreciate you spending your time talking about this important topic. Oh, my pleasure. I hope this helps. <laughs> I think for, it will. Plus, it's listeners. an interesting topic amongst uh, birth workers, amongst pregnant women. So let's dive a little bit into... Um, I guess also what piqued your interest in focusing on the birth community, because we don't have a lot of men that, that do that. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that from your background. Um, actually, it, I'm a very <laughs> old person, so I've got an extensive background. The um, number of years ago, I became a childbirth educator. I taught what would now be considered Lamaze classes. 
um, after the birth of my second daughter. And what happened was people were asking questions in the classes that I couldn't answer. And so I began looking into uh, researching those questions because I was a professional academic. And um, one thing led to another. I just kept researching it because this is a richer and more varied area than um, any other area I could imagine I to, love that. to I research on. I don't honestly know any other um, male childbirth educators. So how did that, how were the women relating to that? Um, hopefully reasonably well. Um, yes. I'm a professional teacher. And so hopefully I could offset some of the facts, uh, the difficulties that uh, might ensue from the fact that I was a male. Um, and the other piece was as childbirth educators, we were always taught that it's not about your own experience. Uh, it's about talking about things in broader terms. And it's about the experience that the people Absolutely. in your class were about yes, to Yes, I believe through. that. And so I, and uh, plus then I could get into positions showing pushing and stuff that others might have been mm -hmm. more uncomfortable no, I, doing. I've, I've read that about your background and I thought it was interesting because I remember um, as I was a doula for many years before I had my own kids, I did have people say, you know, I don't know how comfortable I am with you supporting me when you don't know what it's like to have gone through. And I always said, you know, there's many male gynecologists and obstetricians that will never go through it. So I was just wondering how people related to you as a childbirth educator. And I do believe it's about the information and supporting the people, not necessarily your experience. So thanks for sharing that. All right. So let's jump into induction. So, um, I don't know, and I didn't ask you ahead of time about this, but do you have any numbers or basic idea of the rate of induction um, that women are facing? Has it been an increase or decrease in the trend? So um, over time, it's increased in the United States. We don't have really great data on this, but um, the data that we do have, there's an item on the birth certificate. So we have that at the national level, but it's not necessarily accurately reported. Um, what it suggests is the rates have gone up from uh, in the low teens to the sort of mid-20s uh, in rates of induction um, overall. And uh, if you limit it to vaginal births, it's a little bit, little bit higher. In a study that we'll be referring to that I worked on uh, called Listening to Mothers, um, we found even higher rates of attempted inductions that almost 40% of the mothers reported that there was an attempt at a medical induction and that about um, three quarters of them said it was successful, that is it started labor. So about 30% of those mothers. And that may be closer to the, to the rate. The other thing though is of late, that rate has stopped increasing in the last several years. Uh, those rates have leveled off much as the rates of cesareans have leveled off. And that's in part because of a national campaign to try to reduce inductions before 39 weeks. And um, the net result was there were more spontaneous vaginal births after that. When you, she, incredibly enough, when you do fewer, uh, fewer inductions, you end up with more spontaneous vaginal births. That's the kind of high level research insights no, I that's can important. Uh, why, so why do you think there are so many what, uh, inductions? What are some of the influences of that? Um, some of it's cultural in the United States. Let's get things moving. Um, I remember seeing an article from the 1930s in Time magazine uh, touting the fact that we can now control when women give birth. And uh, it was called birth by appointment. And that's, that's a cultural phenomena, right? The ability to control everything. And um, one of the challenges in labor and birth, of course, is it's so difficult to control. And induction provides that, that opportunity. So that's one piece where it may not be the driving force, but it doesn't 
um, it doesn't serve as a barrier against more inductions. In other words, we're, we're kind of open to the idea. At another level, um, probably the most direct one is a concern among some clinicians, particularly maternal fetal medicine specialists, uh, whose primary focus is the avoidance of stillbirth. And so they tend to be most supportive of earlier inductions because not surprisingly, if you did more early inductions, mm -hmm. you would avoid stillbirths more often, right? Um, there's a trade-off that goes with that that we'll be talking about as we continue on this. But from their perspective, if the question is how do we avoid stillbirths, then inductions earlier and earlier are one of the ways to, to do that. Um, another factor is that, and this gets tricky, and I, and I know this goes to one of the things we had talked about discussing maybe a little later, but it's this trade-off mm -hmm. between induction and cesarean. On the one hand, you could make the argument that there's a cascade of interventions that leads from induction to cesarean, that a woman gets induced, labor gets really hard, she gets uncomfortable, they feel like they need to do a cesarean. On the other hand, uh, there's research that suggests that for physicians who are trying to avoid cesareans, the selective use of induction can be one of the ways they can avoid cesareans, um, both induction and augmentation by avoiding um, what they term dystocia or very long delayed labors. You know, like a lot of this, it comes down to not induction in and of itself, just like cesareans in and of themselves aren't inherently good or bad. Mm -hmm. It's the appropriate use of them. And historically, when we're talking about childbirth, there's a lot of matters that um, are really valuable when they're first established. Uh, to serve one purpose that eventually get applied more broadly and the benefits associated with them get lessened. And so the selective use of induction is fine. The widespread use of induction is right. Where you start I actually to see that with external fetal monitors too. Like the idea of it intermittently, I get, but the overuse of always having them. So it's kind of the same thing. It was interesting you touched upon schedule. Um, I remember a couple years ago I found this graph on NPR, and they showed the highest uh days of induction, or, or births, actually, sorry, it was births. And it was interesting that holidays like Christmas and New Year's and Thanksgiving had very little births. And it made me think there's probably less uh, inductions around that time. So I'm thinking schedule might have something to do, schedule of mom and doctor. So it was just, uh, I'll, I'm going to put that on the show notes. Yeah, we all know women don't go into labor on Saturdays. <laughs> well, I do a lot. I can say no. <laughs> either. That's just that's a given fact, and, and nor do they go in birth on, on holidays either. Um, just yeah, know I'm going to put that uh, that graph in the show notes because it's really fascinating. You'll see like a few days before very heavy births, and then. It was, so it was a colored chart. So I think white was how many, how few births. So like it was dark green the few days up to it, and then like white, like very little on those major holidays. Um, so what are some valid reasons to induce? I know women are often. I actually had Rebecca Decker. I don't know if you know of her from Evidence-Based Birth. Uh, she and I spoke yeah. about big babies, and that's something that I hear students always concerned about. My doctor saying my baby's big, or I'm afraid to go past my due date, or I'm having low fluid levels. Can we talk about some valid reasons besides? So, so schedule might not be a valid reason, but what are some medically valid reasons? Yeah, well, actually, okay. big babies is probably yeah, not yes, one please. of them. Yes, yes, Can yes. We touch on that first, um, because we oh, just yeah. did a study on that, and um, and what we looked at was it was going to be part of another study um, that looked at shared decision making in childbirth, 
and we wanted to look at cases where mothers were told they might have a big baby and resulted mm -hmm. in an induction or a cesarean. And when we asked mothers the question, mothers who hadn't had a cesarean before were asked the question, um, was there a time during your pregnancy when you were told that your baby might be quite large? And, we, and that was just a screening question to go into the other things. But it turns out about 31% of the mothers said yes. And that's pretty amazing that a third of the mothers were told their babies might be getting quite large, um, in part because mm -hmm. babies aren't getting any bigger. Um, if people are interested, they can go to, to this website that I do with my students called Birth by the Numbers, and we have the data up there, and you can see that babies have not been getting bigger for, for a couple of decades. But the implication that they're getting bigger is kind of a natural one to accept because you assume people are healthier, they're eating better, the babies must be getting bigger. And then the assumption is, well, if they're getting bigger, maybe they're not mm -hmm. as easy to get out, right? We found a wholly different phenomenon at work here, and it was mothers being told that their baby might be getting quite large um, undermines their own confidence in their ability to have a vaginal birth. And so what was happening was mothers who were told this were much more likely to ask about an induction, much more likely to ask about a cesarean, much more likely to get a, an induction. And in part, it's, it, and, and by the way, the mothers who were told that they were gonna have a big baby um, on average did have slightly bigger babies, but it was about six ounces. Um, not, and the average weight of the babies that, um, of the mothers who were told they were gonna have a big baby was only slightly higher than the so average birth So what's the average weight birth weight right now? Um, it's around okay, so 7 you know, quote unquote, big baby, it's 8, 13. Oh. Actually, I'm sorry, that's a little high. That's still, like seven, that's seven, I mean, compared sorry. to what's oh. quote unquote a big baby, that's eight pounds, 13 ounces. So that's still a bit away from that. Oh yeah, a long way away from that. In only 20% of the cases were the babies eight pounds, 13 ounces or more, which is macrosomia, which is when you might want to think about doing an induction or um, ultimately a cesarean in cases like that. But um, yes. but it's the psychology of it that's that's really, really critical here. So this episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Um, now that I attack one <laughs> no, of the no, reasons I, I didn't you think that was valid for, personally. I just wanted to say, what are things? Because that's what that's what my students are coming in saying. You know, my my doctor is telling me my baby's big. My and when they when they hear it from their doctor, I think they think it's a medically justified reason. Yeah. Well. Um, I'll just finish on that point with two things. One, yeah, I speak yes. about this wherever I can, um, and I give talks in different countries. And what's really interesting is the degree to which people in other countries are coming up and saying, mm -hmm. that's happening here too. Um, so I've had people from Germany, Australia, Denmark, all come up to me after my talks and say, that's a phenomenon here as well. Is that a new phenomenon so that's other, starting to happen there? Um, yeah, uh, to, to some extent it is. And what's interesting, though, is I also do grand rounds on occasion, mm -hmm. talking to obstetricians. 
<laughs> not a lot. I don't get invited back a lot, but I get I get invited in to do these, and I always bring this up with them, and I ask them about it, and their response is, um, well, we're supposed to tell mothers everything. Wouldn't we be delinquent if we didn't tell them that they might be having well, a big baby? Well, it's such a hit or miss because and, the way to find out ultrasound, even hands-on Leopold maneuver, it's not very accurate. <laughs> right. Um, but from their perspective, better to tell a mother about a risk that doesn't happen than to neglect to tell her about a risk that does actually result in a, in a problem. Um, if, if I tell you you might be having a big baby and the baby's normal size and everything's fine, you don't care. You don't get upset about that. If I don't tell you about a problem that, and your baby turns out to be 815 and you're having a long, hard labor that ends up in a cesarean, you're really angry with me. And so by the logic of this, we found that um, mothers were more likely to be told that babies were large. Actually, when ultrasound was used for weight, they were also uh, disproportionately likely to be told their baby might be really small. In other words, it makes more sense for the clinician to talk about mm -hmm. risks on the two ends than normal risk because of this, this approach. And interestingly, in listening to mothers, we asked mothers, um, what risks do you want to be told of? And they overwhelmingly said, I want to be told about every possible risk. That would risk. stress me out. <laughs> Yeah, and it, but you know, so there's a real ethical question for clinicians on this. I don't think clinicians are sort of sitting there rolling their right, hands saying, "I want to deceive mothers," by any means. I think I think it's sort of a systemic problem and a cultural problem. I think problem it just goes arises. back to the confidence, though. So I, I see both sides. I do see that it's their ethical responsibility to say there might be a risk babies getting large, but what does that do to the mother's ability to believe that her body can birth this baby? So it's it's kind of up in the air of what's best. Well, it's also right. a matter of how it's conveyed, right? And that's the message I try to get across to clinicians. Namely that uh, you can say, it looks like your baby might be large, and that's really a good thing because that means the baby's healthier. The risk here is not big babies. The risk is small babies. And so to find out that the baby might be a good size is actually terrific news. And if you convey that in a way that suggests both that's healthy for the baby and it's not an impediment to you giving birth vaginally, that changes the whole mm -hmm. dynamic in I those like cases. But some of it's got to come from a feeling that women can give birth vaginally successfully. Yeah, that goes to something I always, I feel like every interview I have, it comes down to the care provider. How, you know, what is the care provider's belief? So if your care, if the woman's care provider believes that the body can adapt to a big baby and that the mom can do it, then I think that's going to be related. If the care provider's anxious or has had shoulder dystocia problems with babies, then maybe it's more, hes the, the care provider's more hesitant. So I think it all comes back down to care providers. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about um, low fluid levels? Because I hear this from my students as well. Um, that's, a, that's a reason that might be cited. That's closer to an actual medical reason, although that's not a precise mm -hmm. measurement as well. I mean, the most straightforward reasons for induction are either, again, a post date that's well past the date and uh, tests suggest the placenta is no longer functioning mm -hmm. as effectively as it should. Um, alternatively, if a mother has hypertension and potentially preeclampsia, then the, you know, the way to uh, get rid of preeclampsia right. is to give birth. And so there are some clear medical reasons to do that. Um, when we asked mothers in listening in the survey, listening to mothers, what were the leading reasons that you were um, given for, for the induction, 
the leading reason was baby was full term or close to the due date. Right. Which is not a medical reason. It's, um, but that may be part of the thinking. The second leading reason was the mother wanted to get the pregnancy over with. Um, you know, the third was care provider was concerned the mother was overdue. That's closer to that prevention of stillbirth issue, although we don't have that a definition here. That was my next question, you know, because I've had, when I first started learning about prenatal, my teacher said, you know, it's anywhere from 30 to 7 to 42 weeks. And I say that to my students, they're like, 42? I can't go past 40 in six days. My care provider won't let me. So when did we start to get pretty strict with 40 weeks as, and then around that time? Um, studies that came out that showed increasing rates of stillbirth after 40 weeks uh, were the impetus for it. Now, again, you could, um, A, rates of stillbirth are very, very low. Um, and so that might not be as big an issue as it seems. But if if your job as a maternal fetal medicine specialist is to prevent stillbirth, mm-hmm. then that's a big deal for you. Um, that was probably the biggest impetus for it. Um, you know, we, we find that mothers are told, um, well, let me just get back to the list of reasons why they were told. Um, there was a maternal health problem that required a quick delivery. It was the fourth leading reason, which that's fits clearly into the medical side. Um, fifth was care provider was concerned about the size of the baby, not a medical reason per se. Um, water had broken. There was concern about infection. Um, that's can be a legitimate reason, though it's not clear how long you can go safely in those cases. Um, and then mother wanted to control the timing of birth for work or other personal reasons. Right. It's not all on the clinicians. You know, obviously mothers get really tired of being pregnant after a while. And so it doesn't necessarily take them take a lot to push them to mm-hmm. let's go ahead and get this thing done. And then the next reason, which is like seventh leading reason, was uh, concern about amniotic fluid around the baby. That's interesting. It's seven because I feel so, at least once a week I have a student come in and say, you know, um, I, you know, whether it's postpartum or right before pregnant or during into pregnancy, I'm going to be induced. My fluid levels are low, or comes back after postnatally and said my fluid levels are low. I was rushed straight, and my doctor told me to go straight to the hospital. So I feel like I hear it often, but maybe it's just my population I'm working with. You know, when you when I first talked to you, I, I realized you would be one of the people who works with a lot of low fluid women. <laughs> That's crazy. New Yorkers were just running around too much. <laughs> well, that actually That's brings it. me up to. I mean, I do feel like the population I work with is a little different than uh, the general population of America because I feel like, especially in New York, um, I'm seeing a lot of. I don't want to say because I was also what I call an older mother, but uh, more advanced maternal age, uh, you know, where our typical student is is 35 or a little beyond, um, where I think in other parts of our country it is earlier. Uh, should maternal age be a reason to induce before 40 weeks? Um, okay. Absolutely, maybe. Uh, there's no... So there are more risks for older mothers. Um, associated with giving birth. A little bit higher risk for their babies, higher risk for them, um, but both of those are in the context of relative risk. The absolute risks remain really low. I think what you'd like to do is find a provider who would treat you as an individual as opposed to simply a um, elder uh, (laughs) gravita, which is how how the term gets used sometimes. 
because heaven forbid you're 38 years what, old and you have What your is first the cutoff? Kid. I mean, is 30, uh, everyone freaks out. 35. Like, I honestly, I was 37 with my first and 40 with my, my second. And I remember someone once referred me to it as a geriatric pregnancy. And I immediately thought, like, do I need a walker? Yeah. Like, you know. Right. Exactly. Um, again, if you look at the mm-hmm. data, there are greater risks for older mothers. Um, but a lot of them can be easily documented during pregnancy and addressed as individual risk as opposed to a generic risk based on, on age. But having said that, you know, when we've looked at it, uh, cesarean rates, for instance, go up um, by age, even after you control for most risk factors, for instance, uh, for, uh, for at least all of the risk factors that we can get, get data on. So some of it is just perceptual. Um, Another piece of it might be that um, we find some evidence, and this isn't clear cut, of a sort of top-off cesarean um, where I'm never having another kid, so let's just Mm -hmm. get this one done quickly. And so that may be at work. And actually, you know, there's there's risks associated with any individual cesarean, uh, especially if there's not a medical risk that, that serves as the basis for it. But the biggest risks of cesareans are multiple cesareans over time. That's when the, the greater risks arise. If, uh, if every woman was having one kid, then higher cesarean rates wouldn't be anywhere near mm-hmm. the problem that they are now. Um, and so maybe there's a little bit of that at work. But I think most of it is perceptual, that the sense that an older mother is at greater risk. Clearly, we've been doing research on maternal mortality lately. Um, and older mothers are at greater risk for maternal mortality. But those risks we're talking about are on the order of uh, 20 per 100,000. So absolute, absolute risks are really pretty small. I wonder small if that's really the, it's, the numbers are told to the women. So we're saying there is an increased risk, but it doesn't seem like the increase is a huge increase. Like it's still a relatively small number of risk. Is that correct? Am I hearing that right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I actually wrote a piece about that a few years ago on uh, absolute versus relative risk. And the nature of the research we do when we do these studies and we try to control for a lot of things, we end up with something called um, an adjusted odds ratio. And that can give you a relative risk. And it would basically say something like um, you come up, you do a big analysis, and it says the likelihood of of this problem is 1.5. And what that means is it's a 50% higher risk than it would be if you didn't have this particular condition, right? But if the initial overall risk is only one in 10,000, that means you've gone from one in 10,000 to 1.5 in 10,000. And so the likelihood of that particular event happening, really, really small. And so um, I think it's fair game for mothers to ask um, when they're told this has a higher risk, to ask what's, what's the, the foundation risk? what's the, the actual likely risk i get that and you know there's a, a well-known study a few years ago on vbax that found a higher risk for vbax for uterine rupture for instance which is a standard finding but noted that you'd have to do several hundred more cesareans to avoid one uterine rupture um and that there are trade-offs then you know for those several hundred women who are getting the cesareans um that they're going to face other risks down the road so I know most women who are pregnant are not saying, geez, I, I, let me go look up my absolute and relative risk ratios. But um, it's not an unimportant question because I think if I told you, you know, there's a one and a half in 100,000 chance of this happening, 
you'd say, oh, screw that. I'm not going to worry about that. But if I told you it's a 50% higher risk, it kind of goes back to what you're saying about how things are, how you're spinning things, like the big baby issue. You know, like, let's look at, you might have a bigger baby, but bigger babies are really healthy. It's kind of the same thing. It's how it's presented that is going to be how it's digested and taken in. So I, I think that's an important question. So what are, what are some of the downsides to induction? Well, again, you might end up with iatrogenic prematurity. Um, you end up, you know, our estimates of gestational age are just that, estimates, uh, while a woman is pregnant. And so um, you have the potential of delivering the baby earlier than you might have. For instance, the famous concern that we had um, some time ago about rising prematurity rates in the United States. Um, some colleagues and I did research on this, and when we looked at it over time, the prematurity rate was going up. Babies born before 37 weeks, it was going up. And Matcha Dimes had a big effort around this, uh, and it's part of the reason we now have this relative ban on inductions before 39 weeks. In part because our research and others' research found this, that when you looked at spontaneous vaginal births, across the same time period that the prematurity rate was going up, the prematurity rate for spontaneous vaginal birth was going down. That all of the increase in the prematurity rate was happening related to either cesareans, inductions, or combination of inductions and cesareans. And so that's when, um, again, the biggest impact was from Matcha Dimes. They got into this and said, what do we do to avoid um, doctor cause? Iatrogenic just means medical-caused um, prematurity. And now most states, the medical societies in those states say, we won't do cesare- uh, we won't do inductions before 39 weeks without a Great. medical indication. That's good. That's really helpful. Because even in my time of working with women, it's been about 15 years of working with pregnant women, I have seen a, a drop of 39 weeks is now a change where it used to feel like it was more 37, 38 weeks. So that's, that's, a, really, that's a, good, a good direction. Right. Yeah. No, there's progress that's actually getting made in the U.S. <laughs> that's sometimes. good. Yay for that. Uh, what is, the, and this is going to be a kind of a big topic, but is there or what is the correlation between induction and cesarean? Um, you're right. It is complicated. Um, so if people looked at the listening to mothers survey um, that we did, we have a figure in there, which we refer to as the cascade. And it looks at whether or not a mother has an induction or not. And then if she had an induction, whether or not she had an epidural or not. And again, if she had an induction and an epidural, did she have a cesarean or not? And you can sort of see this as a tree, right? You start off with two cases, then four cases, then eight cases as you split out. What happens is when you look at it that way, women who had no induction, no epidural, had a cesarean rate of about 5%. Women who had an induction and an epidural and these were all low-risk women to begin with. Women who had an induction in epidural ended up with a cesarean rate around 32%. So that, on the face of it, suggests a strong relationship between induction and, mm-hmm. and cesareans. But it's way more complicated. I wish I could say that was clearly the case in all instances. The problem with, your, with being a researcher is you can <laughs> rarely say anything definitively. It's always under these circumstances, mm-hmm. for these data, for these times. Right? Um, but that does suggest the potential for a relationship between the two. Um, the research, the formal research on it is really mixed. 
there's some that show it's related, some that show it isn't. If you just looked at the data on a, a simple level, you could take the national data and run it, you would find that induction was related to um, cesareans for multiferous mothers, not for, for first-time mothers. Um, I think what it really comes down to is the reasons for the induction and the people who are doing the induction and the way they approach birth. If the induction, so so one well-known study uh, argued that um, inductions can be used to reduce cesareans. And when the American College of OBGYN came out with a statement about a year and a half ago on safe prevention of the primary cesarean, one of their recommendations was selective use of induction. That if you use induction in the right circumstances, you can prevent cesareans. Um, I think they're probably right for the people who were doing that study because they had a culture of not being anxious to do cesareans in the first place and using inductions as a means to that to that end. I think the kind of thing we showed in listening to mothers of the cascade of one intervention leading to another intervention leading to another is probably most reflective of a culture. A culture that says, yeah, we intervene and there's a problem with that first intervention, we do another intervention. So we do an induction and that makes the, the labor really hard for the mother to deal with because the contractions get really strong. So we'll give her an epidural. We give her an epidural, labor slows down, nothing much is happening. Now she's into dystocia. So now we have to do I want to back up to that study because I remember this coming out about a year and a half ago, that the whole ACOG statement. When they said there are right reasons, did they say what those right reasons are that they're using to support the induction? That's a really good question, okay, which no, I don't recall the enough. answer to. It's just that kind of struck me. I'm like, well, you know, we have these right and wrong answers. So, you know, if induction, and I do believe in all these medical procedures that we have have validity and should be used at times, but I think, as I mentioned, I think we're overusing them. So when that came out, I remember having a little bit of pushback um, from students, from even teacher trainees saying, you know, there's just a study, this article, that there is not a correlation between induction and cesarean. And then I spoke with one of uh, my favorite OBs here in New York, and he's saying, yes, he remembers seeing that, but from his actual practice in the hospitals, he is not seeing that. So he was talking about like the studying, the kind of the, um, academic view of it, and what he called his daily view of it. And so I feel like for most daily people in the trenches, they are seeing a correlation of induction and cesarean. Oh, I... Again, I think it goes to, this sounds yeah. trite, but it goes to culture, right? In places that um, intervene, I mean, it's sort of like when you look at cesarean rates and you look at overall cesarean rates and you see some hospitals are higher than others and you publish that and the hospitals come back and say, oh, no, no, it's about uh, case mix and we deal with a higher risk population. So we did a study that looked at really low risk populations and we found that the distribution of cesareans was almost exactly the same as it was overall. In other words, places that cut, cut. And I suspect some of the same things happen with induction, that places that want to carefully use induction as a mean to avoid cesareans can do so. Places that see it as just part of a general process um, and induction and cesarean just go hand in hand. 
You're and absolutely right. That is one of the things I hear um, in a lot of the hospitals here. Oh, you know, they see a lot of high risk women. So, of course, their cesarean induction rate is going to be higher. And it was like a reason to support that. I want to jump to some, more of the outcome now of moms and babies. So, we know there is a pretty high rate of induction. Luckily, it's kind of evened out. And Pitocin use, I feel like it's all over the place using PIT. Um, are we actually seeing better outcomes for moms and babies? Um, I can't answer that in terms specifically of induction and outcomes. You know, outcomes in the United States have improved marginally over the years. Um, it sort of works two ways. If you look at U.S. rates on things like infant mortality and neonatal mortality, um, they've gone down slightly in recent years. Um, if you compare that to other countries, what you find is a we had higher rates of, of, say, neonatal mortality than those other countries did 15 years ago. And those countries actually went down faster than the United States. So we're actually further behind those other countries than, than we were. In the case of maternal outcomes, um, we're actually going up in maternal mortality. Um, and most other countries in the world are going down. The WHO has had a major international effort to reduce maternal mortality, and uh, in over 80% of the countries, maternal mortality rates have gone down. Among industrialized countries, only in the United States has it not gone down, and for reasons <laughs> that are way too boring for your audience. Um, the measurement of this is a tricky matter, but um, it appears at best, absolute best case scenario for the United States would be it's not going down, and it's higher than all, all, all other wealthy industrialized countries, and um, it concerning. could be going up. So, yeah, well, you know, the question for interventions is, is pretty much tied into that stuff, right? Because if you want to make the argument that we're doing more interventions, then the corollary would be um, if we're improving outcomes, then, then shut up. That's fine, right? That's the key to it. But the fact of the matter is we're doing more interventions and we're not improving outcomes. And if that's the case, then I think the burden of proof should be on the people wanting to do more interventions to argue as to why that improves improves outcomes. Yeah, so this can go to a little bit later where I'm going to ask some tips for uh, women <laughs> facing induction intervention. I guess it's tried not to have as many. Um, so how can a mother avoid inductions? Um I mean, the way to avoid a lot of this is to be as healthy as possible during their pregnancy, um, to learn as much as possible about what the trade-offs are. Now, the issue for this is, of course, when you say learn as much as you can, a lot of the sources you'll have will be mostly about all the terrible things mm -hmm. that could happen, which sets a mother up for um, fear of, of birth. And so you, wa you want to strike a balance with that. Um, but the biggest single thing would be to, to find providers who are not going to do interventions unless they're really medically necessary. And the best way to find that out is to ask them about their rates of induction and cesarean. And if they say, well, you know, it's going to vary, then you should, should push them on it. Uh, and if they refuse to say it, that should be an indication in and of itself of concern. Um, the, the tricky thing is, again, life's never simple. Uh, the tricky thing is you go in and you're not, you don't have, you know, old Doc Joe who delivered you, let alone is your, your OB now. Um, it's you're in a group with six people and two of them are terrific 
and two of them you've never met, and two of them you hope to God you don't go into labor on the day that they're covering. And that becomes really, really tricky for mother. Um, making sure that her wishes are clearly known to everybody is, is important. But at the end of the day, it's gonna be your relationship with that provider that's gonna be critical in these cases. To the extent that you have flexibility in your choice, I mean, you know, midwives in and of themselves don't intervene unless necessary, right? And so a first step could be, you know, unless you're ineligible for a midwife, use a midwife. Um, that may be a barrier for mothers in uh, some insurance systems, in some states where there's not as many midwives. Um, likewise, use of birthing centers is a great alternative for mothers. Um, freestanding birthing centers, if they're licensed, need to be linked to a hospital so you can get transfer. And the whole philosophy is to not intervene unless, unless necessary. So choice of site and choice of provider can be the, probably the keys to all of that. It's less to do mm -hmm. with the mother per se and more to do, you know, oftentimes we'll say setting trumps almost everything. And if you're in a setting that does a lot of intervention, yeah, but you touched on something that I see a lot of my students dealing with right now. So um, we have, I have several students that are interested in home birth, and I had two home births myself, and somehow I got it covered by insurance. But a lot of my students are facing an issue that they want to be with a midwife, and they want to birth out of out of the hospital, and they can't find insurance that will cover it. So hands are getting tied. The women are choosing to try to advocate for themselves and advocate for their, and it's a totally different topic, but, you know, and you touched on it, it's becoming a problem. You know, women really do want to try to have less intervention and they're finding they're not able to. It's a problem. Yeah. It, in the context of an individual pregnancy, that's an almost impossible problem to overcome. You, you know, you're generally not going to be able to change insurers during your pregnancy. Um, if you're living in a state that doesn't have any birthing centers and there's a handful of states where there's literally none or in a place where there's only a in Massachusetts, which is seen as sort of a, a liberal state, uh, there's only two in the state. And so unless you and they're both in the eastern part of the state. So unless you're you know, living on uh, in this half of the state, you're not going to really have access to that. Um, in the long run, advocacy around these issues, advocacy with insurance companies, advocacy um, for legislation that, that reduces the barriers to birthing centers can be really valuable, but um, the nature of pregnancy doesn't lend itself to a lot of lobbying um, in the midst of that pregnancy. And then, of course, one of the dilemmas for advocacy around childbirth is uh, mothers are most interested in these issues, not surprisingly, while they're pregnant. And once they've had the baby, they're parents. And that kind of sucks up a little bit of your time. And they don't have the opportunity to necessarily right. follow up Well, that's up why we have issues. advocates like myself, like you, that want to try to help women with these issues. It really kind of breaks my heart when I do have students say they would like to try a home birth, but they don't have, they can't get it covered by their insurance. And so they're feeling uncomfortable going into the hospital. And as we talked about earlier, if the mom doesn't have confidence, then it's going to affect how her labor unfolds. Yeah, the time invested early in pregnancy in finding providers that you feel very comfortable with who work in settings that are not committed to intervention. And most places now you can find out, for instance, what a hospital cesarean rate is. And if you're living in Miami and you're looking at a hospital with a 63% cesarean rate, which is true in some cases, um, 
you kind of get a hint as to that's where they're going. That's a huge number. I did not know that. My, wow, 63%. That's that's a bit frightening. I'm going to shift yeah. gears. So I was looking through your website, the birth by the numbers, um, and you talk, the, one of the articles had something to do with socioeconomics and, and birth. So it kind of got me thinking that there is a disparity of in childbirth education as well as prenatal care based on socioeconomic standings. Is this seen in the induction rate and outcome for mothers and babies? It's hard okay. to pull it out separately. If you just look at induction rates by, um, for example, race, ethnicity, mm-hmm. um, not much difference, oh. surprisingly, um, maybe not surprisingly. Um, if you look at it, however, by whether mothers are on Medicaid or not, um, Medicaid mothers are much, much more likely to be induced than non-Medicaid mothers. And that may well be the case. Uh, that may just be a proxy oh. for risk. Um, that, that it's capturing a higher level of, of risk. If you look at it by education, um, you get this kind of funny relationship, we would term a curved relationship, um, where it's highest for mothers with less than high school, then it drops down to mothers with some college, and then um, it's a little bit higher for college grads and those with a graduate degree. Right. Again, it's never simple. It's always nice if you can find relationships that are clear cut um, but that's never seems to be the case. But with the fair enough. I, I just was interested when I was reading that because I do know that there is some women that are lower income often don't get the same prenatal care and often the childbirth education. So I feel like they're getting the information kind of in pieces and may not be able to make informed decisions or educate as, as educated decisions. So I wanted to start to wrap things up. Do you have any final words for pregnant moms out there that are hoping to have an easeful, spontaneous vaginal birth, but may face induction? Um, I mean, this is all standard stuff. If you focus on, don't wait to get pregnant to focus on your health. Um, one of the big issues is mothers um, who start pregnancy, for example, overweight or obese, not during their pregnancy, but start. Um, are much likely, much more likely to have cesareans, much more likely to have inductions, much more likely to, actually a little less likely to have inductions simply because they're gonna get a cesarean. They'll have a planned cesarean as a result. Um, and we did a big study on that and um, those mothers also have higher rates of infant mortality. And the point of it all is um, that waiting until you're pregnant to start thinking about birth is too late that you really do want to start thinking about your pregnancy as part of general focus on on women's health. Mm -hmm. And the system has to do that, too. We have a system that doesn't pay much attention to women's health until they're pregnant. And then once they've had the kid, we don't care about it much anymore either. And so, A, a focus on women's health would be critically important. For the individual woman as well, to think, um, as I said, a lot about who you have as a provider and where you're going to have that baby would probably dictate as much as anything what the likelihood is of um, getting the kinds of birth experience that you hope to have. This is all great information. I'm sure our students and the birth workers that listen to this will find it valuable. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and put all your information on our show notes. So if people want to read more about your research and kind of crawl through your website, because I found it quite interesting, but I'm a bit of a birth geek myself. Um, I'll make sure that's up there. But I want to thank you so much for your time and your information and your knowledge. So um, again, thanks for coming on. It certainly sure, did. All right. Well, have Hope a great afternoon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com.